This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. Well, we're winding down our summer series of guest interview replays. Soon we'll start recording new content for you. This time, however, you'll hear our conversation with retired Air Force Major Brian Scholl from episode 375. That was published on November 4th, 2015. Here's what we said about Brian in the show notes for that episode. Brian Scholl served as an Air Force fighter pilot from 1970 to 1990, flying close air support during the Vietnam conflict, He was shot down near the Cambodian border in 1974. Unable to eject, he rode the plane into the jungle, and he was seriously burned during the ensuing fireball. He was lucky to be alive, and he spent a year in the hospital and was told his flying days were over. Miraculously, after many surgeries and months of physical therapy, Brian returned to active flying duty. He went on to fly the A-7D. He was in the 1st A-10 squadron. He taught at the Air Force's Top Gun School in the F-5B, and his flying career culminated by flying the SR-71 spy plane. Retiring from the Air Force in 1990, Brian pursued his writing in photography by starting his own business with Gallery One. He was the first man to write a book about flying the SR-71, all illustrated with his own photography. He did a second book, and these two became the most popular SR-71 books worldwide. Also, Brian was the only man in America to fly extensively with the Air Force Thunderbirds and the Navy Blue Angels, writing books about both teams. All right, here's our conversation. Well, Brian, let's talk about your uh, your flying career, and uh, you you kind of uh, had one of those uh, childhoods where you really aspired to uh, fly jets someday, didn't you? Well, you know, I uh, I always joke about that. When I was a kid, I tell people when I was about seven or eight years old, I lost my virginity to an air show, and I hmm. I just had never seen anything like that when. Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps for 33 years, so we used to go to a lot of, a lot of air shows and things. And uh, we went to Andrews Air Force Base, I'll never forget, around 1956, 57. And, uh, boy, they put on real shows in those days. Uh, they had the Blue Angels there and the Thunderbirds and a B-58 Hustler flew by. And uh-huh. they would, there were a lot of uh, F-106 was kind of a new airplane then. And uh, so I saw just about everything in the inventory as you know that andrew show is a big one every year Mm. and i pretty much uh from that moment on decided i needed to try that and uh, see what that was like i was pretty certain later in life that the yankees were going to call me to play third base for him but that never (laughs) really panned out but uh, i figured i needed to at least go fly jets for a little while and uh, it really captured my entire uh just reached in and grabbed my soul at that at that young age and it's just something I, I i was very fortunate enough to get to do yeah and it's an example of why i think it's important that we have air shows uh both the you know civilian and and military varieties of those uh, in and that we bring kids children to uh, expose them to this not that 
you know, every one of them is going to aspire to be a pilot or uh, to fly a jet someday. But, uh, you know, if... But even just for to let the taxpayer of this country see what, yeah. what it is that, uh, you know, that the men and women of your armed forces are doing and some of the hardware and it's... It's a very impressive thing, but it's it's not only a great show. But I mean, it's it's really I think important. I, I would hate to see shows go away. I really would. Yeah, now, you flew the SR seventy one to uh, to the Paris Air Show, was it? I got to fly several big uh, big air shows. Um, I didn't get to fly it to the Paris Air Show. We just stood uh, static there. But I I did fly it in the uh, Dayton Air Fair, the uh, big Mildenhall Air Show in England, and. Uh, Got to open the Reno Air Races uh, one year. Um, did a, a couple of big shows, and it was it was just so um, incredible. People's reaction to seeing the airplane fly, and then to, to put it on display and stand out in front of it—probably one of the proudest things you could ever do as a military aviator. Um, it was an iconic airplane that uh, just captured people's imagination. It represented everything good about Yankee technology, and and it was undefeated. People like like that undefeated thing and uh first in class you know it was uh unmatched and uh people are very proud to claim that airplane as part of an american arsenal of uh aviation and we were of course proud to stand out there keep in mind only 93 men in history got to fly this this airplane right. checked out in this airplane so i always kid that i enjoyed it more than the other 92 only because of uh <laughs> where I'd been 12 years previous laying on, in a hospital uh, and never thinking I'd even fly again. So it was a meaningful thing for me, maybe more so than the average uh, guy. But even anyone in that program, it, it, was, a, it was a very special uh, thing to do. I like the way that you have described the, uh, I can't think of his name right now, the uh, Russian fighter pilot who defected. Oh, Victor Belenko. Ah, yes, yes. Tell tell our listeners this uh, that that brief well, story he, about his. Well, he really uh, he he like so many Soviet pilots, uh, did not understand uh, how we could build an airplane in the '60s that they couldn't shoot down in the '90s, and uh, that MiG-25 was built specifically for the purpose of shooting down an SR-71. And he just he he in the debriefing he said we we couldn't understand how your decadent capitalist Mickey Mouse society could build an airplane that, back then that we couldn't you know surpass uh, twenty years later. And the general uh, I, I remember got right in his face uh, and said, "Well, that's what you can do in a country where men are free." And uh, he became an American citizen. And they they asked him, "What would you like to see now that you live in America?" And he, he said only two things, you know, Disneyland and an SR-71 up close. He <laughs> <laughs> thought, yeah, that's the closest you ever got to one. Pat. Yeah, right. But uh, it was a uh, very unique airplane on many different levels. Not only how it was built, what it did, what it meant to this country, uh, foreign policy-wise, how it helped win the Cold War, just superior aviation records i mean so it, it, it just the fact that you built it at a titanium which was almost impossible to do um there were many aspects of the program and the airplane itself that truly make it a legendary piece of aviation history to me part of it is the engine of course i had a 35 year career at pratt and whitney so i have a you know a little bit of of a affinity to the uh, the sr71 through that j58 engine well, it was a tremendous engine, it really was. 
Yeah, you mentioned the cone uh, at the at the tip at the front. Uh, it's a uh, interesting how the, that was used to manage the uh, the internal shock or the inlet shock wave. Yeah, the the real secret of the airplane. It it wasn't that we had an engine bigger and better than anyone else could possibly build. It, it wasn't. It was just a real strong engine, a very beefy uh, engine, a muscle car engine, definitely. But but what made that airplane able to sit up there at Mach 3 and cruise easily when most airplanes could get to Mach 2, but they couldn't sustain it. And it was the inlet system that rerouted air around the, the burner section or around the uh, engine into the burner section. So you were getting like free thrust and free ram air. The faster you went, the less gas you were burning. But it required those spikes in each inlet to move aft at a very specific schedule, which was one and five-eighths of an inch per tenth of Mach number beyond 1.4 Mach. These are numbers you never, ever will forget the rest of your life uh, because that was very critical. If the engines are 18 feet apart, if one spike is a little further aft than the other, you get that yaw moment, and the slightest yaw at 2,000 knots um, means the airplanes are going to hydroplane on you and break up. And they had some airplanes lost like that where they didn't even find the pieces. Um, so it it was a critical thing. And, and when I got to the program in the 80s, we found out there was not one computer in the airplane. It, it, it didn't have any radar, didn't have any computer, didn't have any GPS, anything like that. And we were the first class uh, in 82 where they had first started putting computers in the airplane not to help fly the plane because it was very manual, you know, 50s technology. It was to monitor the spike positions so that when one got a little out of out of order, uh, the other one sympathetically aborted with it so that you kept symmetrical flight. Hmm. So the computers, uh, they had a triple redundancy computer. So it was really just a monitoring system for that inlet. So we, we'd lost way less. We didn't lose any jets after that to... Uh, to inlet uh, problems and, and as the longer the jet flew the more they resolved those issues um, so we had to learn the analog and the computer system which was a real headache when on our first <laughs> our first sorties uh, out of Kadena we we didn't know which airplane we were going to fly and uh, oh lord we just prayed that on the analog system nothing went wrong because we that was a nightmare of trying to uh, know all of the iterations of that system when we had to, had to learn all the new computer uh, system so it was it was kind of a headache and then they phased out the uh, analog but uh, the inlet system is the real secret to why the genius of that airplane every every good soviet fighter and a lot of good american fighters and chinese fighters they could all get up to mach 2 but they couldn't sustain it so they built an airplane big enough the sr-71 that held 80,000 pounds of gas so we had enough fuel to sustain it and then they they had heat problems. They'd burn the engines up. Well, we figured out a way to to keep the engines cool and built it out of materials that could sustain the heat. But the real problem nobody could really overcome, and Ben Rich talks about in his book, The Skunk Works, was figuring out an inlet system that gets you past that Mach 2 range where the engine thinks it's just sitting there at Mach 2 for the rest of the day. It never knows it's going any faster. And that's where the spike and inlet system really come into play. And it was the one thing you had to really learn how to manage as a pilot. It was different than any other jet you had ever flown, where the inlets are just all automatic. You don't, you're not dealing with movable spikes and things. Wow. Like that. So, 
so you had to manually set those, and if so, what what were you setting them by inches? Is that well, what no, the readout no, you, was? They they worked automatically, but you were monitoring that gauge with those two little number one and number two needles. Better be overlapped, and you could take them manually if you needed to. And of course, in the simulator, when you're getting checked out, they give you all the manual stuff. You real headache, real nightmare if you ever had to do that. You'd probably be turning back coming back home and not flying that mission if you if you that really happened dual inlet failure um but it was a a a very big deal that's how you get to have unstarts which is where one one spike uh, loses the shock wave and goes full forward to recapture it and just for a a a moment you get a, a yaw moment where it slams you your head against the window and then the other one sympathetically uh goes forward too and you lose a lot of gas a lot of drag you're way below the fuel profile at that point. Uh, not a good thing. We've all had unstarts, and they, you know, some were more violent than others. But uh, they didn't mean you had to lose the jet or anything. It just it meant it scared the pee out of you uh, when it happened. <laughs> I bet. Uh, so it, it was a very that was the real critical part of the airplane. We didn't build. People think, well, the engines must have been like giant rocket engines. So, no, no, that was your basic 36, 38,000 pound thrust. You know. By today's standards, nothing too exorbitant, really. Hmm. But uh, real beefy, tough engine that could sustain the heat. Sit up there in burner for over an hour and cruise and never get overheated. Uh, so the Pratt & Whitney made a tremendous engine that took a lot of testing to get it to where Kelly Johnson wanted it. But it was that inlet system that was not only the headache for the pilot, but was the heart of the whole system that really made that that uh, airplane go from being Mach 2 for a short period of time to sit up there all day at Mach 3. The program was uh, obviously highly classified at the time. Uh, I guess quite a bit of it's declassified now. Most all of it is declassified, yes. Was it... Um difficult to keep uh, to keep things classified uh, were uh, you know our enemies trying to uh, uh, actively trying to learn the secrets of the SR71 well yeah especially I, I'm, I'm sorry Brian especially when you were taking photographs of the plane all the time well okay that's a two-part question we'll take the first part first is that there came a point in the late 70s and I where the airplane was no secret anymore at all. Yeah. It also was a fact that whenever we flew, we weren't hiding it from anyone. You don't hide a 900-degree heat source from anybody. So everyone knew it was there. They knew when we were flying. They knew where we were. They could track us all day. So there was no more secret about what it was doing and where it was going and when and the fact that it was flying all the time. So given that, they, they said, well, you know, then we start taking it to more air shows and things and all. And, and uh, it wasn't a secret. The, the parts of the airplane that were classified would then be, be more uh, localized to the people who worked on the plane, flew the plane, were in the program. Yeah, there were secrets that you, you just didn't divulge. Um, so it wasn't that, oh, look, they don't have such a plane. Or they, no, if it was out taxiing, taking off, yep, there it is, world's fastest spy plane. <laughs> yeah. uh, it got to that point where... Uh, we weren't in denial anymore, and uh, there was no need to be. Uh, the Soviets gave up trying to shoot it down. They kept embarrassing themselves. The Koreans and the Cubans were the most upset about uh, penetrating their airspace, and they really, really didn't like it. Uh, and we really, really didn't care. Uh, <laughs> the airplane, uh, we enjoyed bringing the sound of freedom to those people. The jet carried a double sonic boom. Uh, the tips of the spike and the 
the nose of the airplane both created a uh, a double sonic boom and i guess ronald reagan uh kind of used that demonstration of uh, of force yes. over north korea didn't he yes uh walter and i were tasked to uh, fly up to korea and do figure eight butterfly patterns one day and we found out later the Soviet, the communists were having a big conference of all the Chinese and Russians and Koreans and Vietnamese. All the bad guys were there. And it was Ronald Reagan's way of sonic booming their coffee cup off the, the desk every every <laughs> six minutes. Uh, just as a way of showing that we know you're there. Now you know we're here and you can't do a thing about it. Um, used it kind of as a, a big stick. To get back to your question about how, how could I be taking pictures of the airplane – uh, that's a good question. And people always assume right away that, oh, that, that's an amazing collection of pictures. Yeah, because they're all illegal and you, you snuck them out. No, no, not at all. Uh, there were many days when I was not uh, permitted to have a camera anywhere near the the plane due to special equipment in the hangar or some other reason. But uh, there were ways if you were willing to get the paperwork done to get approval to take pictures of the airplane when it was outside the barn. That was the rule. When I was in the barn, uh, yeah, there was a lot of equipment, a lot of things. A lot of they didn't particularly uh, want you doing that. But uh, I also had the uh, so I would get permission. I'd have people sign off a letter, and the, and and guys were always kidding me, say, "Well, we all did that once, but you, why do you want to do it again?" I said, "I, I don't know. I just uh, it's a passion, the, the photography, and I'm around the most elegant aircraft ever built. How could you, and why would you want to miss that opportunity?" Uh, so it was different for me than the average guy in that respect. But uh, I also was a T-38 chase pilot there at Beale, and I got many opportunities, which was perfectly fine to carry camera when you're chasing the airplane subsonically around the pattern uh, at Beale in the local area. I got some beautiful pictures. So for me, it was a it was a love, a passion, a, a, a something just to do when you could. Now, keeping it in perspective, I was around the jet for seven years. I got a total of maybe 220 pictures. That is an infinitesimal amount. I wish I could go back and shoot 200 pictures a day for seven years huh. on the airplane. Sure. So I never, I didn't get to do it every day. It was just something you had to work at. Really, you know, sometimes irritate some people to say you're asking again. You want to get another letter signed, approval, you know. Um, and and it was just a passion for me. Never realizing I would do books someday or be a speaker or do anything with those pictures other than be really happy to have them on my wall someday when I was old and gray, never imagining um, they would develop into the icon that the books have become worldwide now just because it now is the world's rarest collection of uh, SR-71 photographs that, that uh, you know, I just really am pleased that I, I was able to preserve a piece of that history in a way that's uh, pleasing to people because I, I never imagined all that unfolded afterwards, but I'm glad I didn't miss the opportunity. And it's one of the things I learned very, very deeply uh, laying on my back for a year in the hospital. When I got out, I saw the world in a very different manner than everybody else. And I, I one of the tenets of my new newfound philosophy in life was not to ever miss the opportunity not to set aside your passion in life and not to, to put it off. You, life is short and it's it's uncertain. And uh, because it's both, you can't possibly miss the opportunities. Uh, so again, I, I looked at the world in a, a completely different way <laughs> that I know uh, upset some people and other people. Uh, I've had numerous emails and thanks from uh, 
people that were in the program over in the last 20 years who said thanks so much for what you did and preserving it the way you did in those books because it, it now we can show you know people what we really did and why it was so important and now it it, it is a, a real piece of history that really helped helped win the cold war and and we're proud we were such a few people that got to do it and i'm, I'm glad one of us was carrying a camera around when he could and sled driver was your first book wasn't it sled driver was the first book yeah and um it was uh, a labor of love, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I had a publisher at that time, and the book wasn't all that well written and all, but it was a huge success just because people loved the the, the whole concept. No one had ever flown the plane and, and written a book about it, and it wasn't a detailed expose or technical book whatsoever. It was a personal memoir. It was a love story of man and airplane, and it was just very – uh, scantily written and it really wasn't that deep and, and when I became the publisher years later I they went out of business and I got the publishing rights we redid the whole book and put it into horizontal format and made it much nicer and I rewrote the whole thing and I was a better writer by then but I also was much more in tune with what people wanted to know about the plane and I'd been doing a lot of speaking and everything so it was uh, it's ten times the book the old original uh book was and and i really we rewrote it rewrote it we worked on it for two years and we're just really proud of it now because it's it's a unique book in the world of aviation books it's i'm not saying you know, i'm the greatest writer or it's the greatest book it's just is the most popular book worldwide on the plane and it is in 48 countries now and we get emails for the last 20 years from australia to norway i i there are fans out there of uh the airplane and a lot of people who quote my own book to me, which always makes me feel good. <laughs> and it seems like it is one of the more expensive books out there. It's hugely expensive in that respect, yeah. It, it, and people always ask me, well, you know, I'm not going to pay $250 for a book. That's insane. And uh, they're paying more than that for the old original ones. They're going for 400 on uh, Amazon. It's just become a cult classic, and we never anticipated this, so – we print a very limited number each year. They're very expensively done. We, we use the finest paper, a cloth cover, the best uh, binding. It, it, in the old days, I remember my publisher cutting back at every corner of the book. Take out the pictures. It'll cost us less. So let's use a different, cheaper paper, a cheaper binding, all this stuff. There's a lot to doing a book, and there's there's a way to do it really nicely, and there's a way to try to do it to save money. And We took out a huge loan. Me and uh, my two or three assistants here, and we did it right. And we sell the books. Uh, well, the books were going for like four hundred some. We sell them now for about two fifty to three hundred. But the, we have never had a book returned. We've never had anyone hmm. say, "Ah, just." Uh, and uh, we could not have anticipated ever the popularity and success of that book. I know now I'll sell that book till I die. Um, and it's fun because people appreciate the airplane so much and they're so interested in the airplane that they've embraced the book as their link to, to it in that way. Because I wrote it in a very non-technical way, which I always tell people I'm not smart enough to do a technical book. Uh, I, I really saw the, the jet through the eyes of a 12-year-old. And I say that because I had been out of the hospital for 12 years and I really felt like I had started life over again and had a kind of a new new lease on life. And I was 12 when I got to the jet, and I, I talk about that in my in my presentations. 
there are several books out there you can buy now that are so detailed in the training, the specs, the building of the plane. Uh, very technical, uh, and, and you can get a lot of data if you want it. I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to just write a, a personal memoir of here's what it was like for all those people at air shows that come up to you and say, what was it like to fly the world's fastest jet? They don't want to know how to build one. They want to know what was that well, like. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to getting our autographed copy. <laughs> you don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing your order your order come through on our website. <laughs> now, Brian, you've also written a book about the uh, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. Well, you know, I was uh I had a real passion for photography and aviation when I got out of the Air Force and I had some ideas that I had had for many, many years I always wanted to do. And uh one was I ended up doing the SR-71 books. I did two of them um, first. But I always thought that uh, no one had ever done really good pilot-oriented books on the Thunderbirds and Blue Angels, Those the two teams that affected my young life. And I knew it was an impossible task because they don't let people just go fly with them and anything. But I, I was uh, – living my own philosophy of uh, living fearlessly and, and just keep on trying to do the, the things you, you most uh, feel passionate about. And I uh, uh, talked to the Thunderbirds for, for about a year. I said, you know, no one has ever documented winter training season from November to March. That's an incredibly difficult period that you put together a new team every year. There's half the team swaps out. And I would like to do a book to document and, and, you know, make people understand what a great transition that is every year to not take it for granted. And they said, well, no, we don't let people come out in winter training and fly with us, so forget that. And one day I was uh, at an air show selling my sled driver book, and the leader of the Thunderbirds walks by and says, hey, you're the sled driver guy. My daughter got me your book. <laughs> he, said, I, he said, I love it. Can you do a book like that for us? And I said, well, sir, I would be love to, but they've been telling me no. So he made uh, gave me an audience with the general there at uh, Nellis, and uh, of course the general knew me from my old A10 days. I was an A10 demo guy. And he said, "Brian, so, hey, I'm sure we can make this happen. Let's do it." So it's always in life, you know, kind of who you know, or if someone wants to make it happen, it will. And I, I was the only guy they ever let spend a whole winter training season with him out there at Nellis, uh, and did a book on called Summer Thunder, and it was it was really cute, and and I really felt good about it. But I knew deep down the big project I wanted to do was the Blue Angel. And that one, I wanted to fly with them for the whole air show season. Truly an impossible uh, task. Truly to break every rule known to man to do that. And I called them 427 times. And they said no, of course, uh, all the time. And uh, one day I got in my truck and drove down to El Centro, California, where they do their winter training season. And uh, it's just a godforsaken lettuce field on the Mexico-California border. But there's a little airstrip there, and, and it's beautiful weather all winter. And here comes six blue jets landing, and I'm standing out there, and they're like, who are you? There's nobody out here. And uh, the guy came running out of the shack there who was the public affairs officer, and he said, I know who you are. You're the guy that's been on the phone bugging me for over a year. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was going to say, arrest him immediately. Yeah. But he didn't. He said uh, – I'll give you 10 minutes. I'm in, I'm really impressed that you showed up and shook my hand. And I gave him a 10 minute spiel about how I wanted to fly with the team for an entire year and, and travel with them on the C-130 and sit in the briefings where the debriefs where they don't let everybody and be a fly on the wall and 
have a badge that I can cross the red line at any time at any air show and shoot any pictures I want and and not show them the book till it's all done. You know, he, he said, well, we'll we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks later, I got a call and he said, your whole project's been approved under one condition. And I thought, well, yeah, with the earth splits in two, what? And uh, he said, no, we want to be the guys in the book. So you have to do it this year, not next year. Ah. And, uh, I cleared everything off my desk, borrowed as much money as I could, bought every roll of Kodachrome film I could find. And uh, this was pre-digital days and, and film, 36-roll film. And spent one year with the team and uh, was loading film inverted in the double Farvel pass. <laughs> I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> and did uh, shot about 80,000 slides the whole year and put the best 200 of them in the book. And it was just such a popular, beautiful book. Sold out totally out of print we are actually working on the book right now to get it reprinted uh, by next year oh uh, just i'm really proud of it i wish i could still have some to show people because it, it was uh, it was quite the photo project of a lifetime and it was ended up being about the last flying that i ever did i had done all the flying uh, had about five thousand hours of uh, pure excitement and uh hung up my spurs and said well you know I've, I've done the projects i wanted to do and i really wanted to pursue my nature photography and other things so uh, people say gee you don't fly anymore and i'll say well that's true and i'm i'm happy to to not uh, be doing it because i'm doing other things that i i truly enjoy and uh, but i did the kind of flying and the kind of things i really dreamed about and and uh no one else got to fly with the the Thunderbirds and Blue Angels extensively like that. For it, it, we broke every rule, but they wanted their book to be be better than the Thunderbird book, so they they let me do more. And uh, it's funny how you, the rules are always twisted and broken and bent by people who really want it to get done. Then it then you just do it. Uh, I've been I, uh, very lucky, very lucky to do those. You, you told a great story in 2010 when you uh, were here in Northern California and you received the uh, the Crystal Eagle Award. The the story you told is has been often repeated on the internet. A lot of folks probably don't know it was you. It was related to uh, uh, one or two aircraft checking in on frequency, asking about their airspeeds. Can you tell our our listeners about that? Well, what I would tell them instead of relaying the entire story to them on this broadcast, I, I would tell them go read the book because it's the single most popular story now <laughs> on the jet worldwide. And the reason I say that is the Smithsonian Magazine called me this year and said, hey, we're doing our 50th anniversary issue on the jet. The jet was 50 years old. The SR model was uh, 50 years old. And I said, yeah, I know. We, we made a special gold coin and, and everything. We, we're aware of that. And she said, well, we're putting in the favorite stories, and your story is by far the most requested and single most favorite story by everyone. So we want to make sure we get it right, and would you write it down? I said I would. So anyone can go on the on the internet and type in L.A. Speed Story, and it's there's like 50,000 uh, renditions of it out there, and, um, and it's in my book. And I what's funny is I get people emailing me every day saying, hey, I've got this great story you need to hear. And I go, hey. I wrote it. It's in my book. <laughs> it's you. I'm the guy. And I go, no, no, this is a different I can tell you. And I go, hey, I wrote it. It's in my book. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I could I could tell you the story, but it but it, it's, it has more impact, I think, if people uh, read it and uh, and see it. The part I liked best was it was it was not you that pushed the mic button, right? It was that you said it was at that moment that you realized that you were what kind of in sync that you were of the same mind. 
Walter and I had gone through a year of training. It takes a year to get checked out in the airplane. And uh, I was so uh, biting my lip there to want to say something because uh, since it was a it was a Navy F-18 involved. And uh, while I was going through that angst, uh, Walter uh, hit the hit the mic button in the back seat. So he read your mind. We should mention Walter. Uh- Brian, because uh, the the SR seventy one obviously has uh, there's two occupants. Uh, you're in the front uh, driving the plane, but uh, you you had Walter behind you. A very important part of the program too. Uh, the guy in the front, your your job was to keep the pointy end forward, uh, and that was a full time job. But the guy in the back had all the cameras, all the sensors, all the defensive systems, all the super duper navigation system. Uh, and he was the heart of the mission, uh, really. So, uh, yeah, flying the airplane was a full-time job up front, but uh, he was the real, the real heart and soul of um, capturing the, the images and, and all that. Walter had the distinction of being the only uh, black officer in Air Force history to be a part of this program. We are best friends to this day. Just a great guy, brilliant engineer. Couldn't have had – I probably had the best backseater in the squadron. He just was so – dedicated and and thorough and just a real professional he had flown f4s and f111s and was top dog in his squadrons as a as a navigator wherever he went and uh he got selected and uh they crewed us up and we like say we're best friends to this day he lives in south carolina now we do a a few presentations together oh good each year we do one or two a year um and it, we don't get to do them very often, but uh, we do a two-hour thing called Spy Pilot Chronicles, and we we do this cool show of uh, with all my slides and several videos and a lot of stories, and uh, it's fun. We do them usually for fundraisers and things. So, hmm. um, a little plug for uh, my sister's uh, fundraiser here, uh, Wings of Hope, pancreatic cancer uh, fundraiser. Yeah. Uh, we lost my mom and my brother both to pancreatic cancer, a, a form of cancer that gets very little press, uh, but yet kills the, the highest majority of uh, people that contract it. Um, so uh, Walter and I did one of her shows in Denver uh, last spring, and uh, we always draw big crowds. So she was real happy. We got quite a few people there. And she was charging them 100 bucks a head, and she had almost 400 people there. Oh, so that's we, great. Is your schedule on that website? Normally, every year around uh, late winter, we'll post my uh, speaking schedule. Um, most of the events I speak at aren't necessarily open to the public. They're corporate things or conventions, but a lot of them, uh, some of them are. They're, they're big aviation conventions or fundraisers or uh, things that you could, you know, get into as a guest without, with very little difficulty. But a lot of them are, like I just was in Boston doing the University of Massachusetts uh, Hospital Surgeons uh, Conference probably not a thing anybody would be you know walk in from off the street but um that was pretty interesting but uh, we we do post the schedule um usually by by early spring what's the best uh, website where people can find that and also tell us where uh, the best place is to go to find your books brian um sleddriver.com we kept it real easy real simple sleddriver.com it's one word two d's <laughs> okay uh they can type in gallery one which is the name of my business or they can just type in my name brian shul s-h-u-l which everyone misspells and you'd be amazed what comes up uh any of those will get you to it but to order the, the only way you can get the books is through us they're not sold in bookstores and they're they're special order items um sleddriver.com and boy we are doing a lot of them this this type uh, this time each year from now to Christmas, I just I was just sitting here today signing four or five more orders. Hmm. Um, 
people people like them as Christmas gifts or they're hot item around Father's oh, I'm Day. I'm sure. Yeah, I imagine. I imagine. Well, there's certainly a lot more to uh, your story, Brian, uh, than we have time for uh, this uh, this episode, but uh, uh, it's been great to touch on at least uh, some small portions of it. Uh, the uh, video, the presentation you gave at the web uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, again, invite everybody to uh, visit our show notes and uh, you'll find a link to that video. May I may I make a suggestion, uh, not sure. to interrupt you, but I uh, just did a talk at IHMC in Pensacola, and they taped it, and I found it to be a much better presentation uh, film than ah. the Paris one. Paris one was fine, but the IHMC group uh, was very uh, vocal, uh, but also they split the screen so you can see the slides and me talking at the same time. They did a very professional – it's a science uh, museum down there in Pensacola. IH – India Hotel, Mike, Charlie. Uh, just as a – if people want to go and see my fat face uh, talking, they, they put it up on their – their YouTube. In fact, they sent me a nice DVD of it. So I just found it to be a better, a better presentation viewing experience. Okay, good. Well, yeah, we'll look for that and uh, and put a link to that in the show notes. Very good. All right. Well, Brian, uh, we need to move on to some other uh, other topics here. But again, we want to thank you so much for. Well, wait, oh, wait. I had so many more stories. You have. I know. <laughs> yes. You probably have hours. Well, and hours. I have to move on to dinner because it's uh, seven thirty or six, about six thirty here now. Okay. All right. No problem. I I appreciate fully you guys having me on the show, and I I really enjoy sharing my little my story uh, anytime. Thank you so much, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks, Brian. Sadly, Brian Schroll died on May twentieth, twenty twenty three, in a Reno, Nevada hospital. The cause of death was reported as cardiac arrest. He was seventy five. After our conversation with Brian in 2015, I always thought of him every time I heard Over the Rainbow, and I still do. It actually makes me get a little emotional. Brian's story is quite remarkable. Okay, thank you for listening to this Airplane Geeks replay of our conversation with Brian Scholl in episode 375. You can learn more about Brian and his books at sleddriver.com. And I see that in response to people asking where donations can be made in Brian's memory, his sister Maureen has a link there. We'll put that in the show notes. Also, that page relates Brian's two rules of life. Rule one, life is uncertain. Rule two, Don't ever put anything off because of rule number one. You can also find Brian's impressive photography at Gallery One Images, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Our website is airplanegeeks.com, and our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast.